Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The more stuff my name is attached to, the more likely it is that somebody's going to try to do some kind of stupid true crime bullshit. I'm London. And I'm Anya. And this is the true crime bullshit. Start this off by saying that we suck and we know we suck. And we're like two weeks late on an episode. To be fair, one week I was at my parents because it was Thanksgiving break. Yeah, we really, I really had an idea to give like this episode that we're covering today for Thanksgiving. So I was like, oh, it's a really bigger case. It's a, our first serial killer case. And then I realized how much work serial killer cases are and i was also not ready to uh, do it before thanksgiving so yeah all my homies hate london (laughs) we also might change our publishing days to thursdays because tuesdays are hard to do they're students well she's not but i am yeah anything else fun little updates I stayed up until 5 a.m. because I heard an owl outside my window. That's why I texted you when I woke up. I was like, are you sure you're coming this morning? Are you okay? (laughs) It was like five hours later that you posted that you were up at 5 a.m. listening to an owl. I'm like, is she going to be awake? Literally, I think it was so cool because I started hearing it. I was like, is that a fucking owl? And then I was like, there's no way that I'm ever going to be next to an owl again. (laughs) <laughs> and so i stayed up for five hours listening to the fucking owl it was so worth it though it was so cool no, i don't have anything else really i've been engrossed in this case for like two weeks now researching it bars yeah <laughs> and some trigger warnings is sexual assault and suicide at times um so yeah just want to let you know and we'll get into it 18 year old samantha koenig lived in anchorage alaska Samantha worked at a small drive-up coffee stand that's, like, popular around there, and on February 1st, 2012, she was there alone, closing down, just like she always does, and her boyfriend of about nine months came to pick her up, but she wasn't there. When he's at home with Samantha's father, he gets a text message from her saying, quote, I'm spending a couple days with friends, let my dad know, but he immediately knew that that wasn't Samantha that sent that, so the next morning, Samantha's father reports her missing. As they were investigating, they looked at the surveillance video at the coffee shop, and they saw a man come up to the kiosk window at about 8 p.m. to get coffee. When she turns back around from making the coffee, you can see that she's, like, surprised. She's holding her hands up and is nervous, as if somebody's pointing a gun at her. And she then turns off the lights, and then you see the man jumping in through the window and starts to walk her out. And then they leave and disappear. Well, that's fucking terrifying. Yeah. Uh, So from there, people started searching for her, donating money, hanging up flyers, doing anything because they knew that she had to be there because in Alaska. And a candlelit vigil was hosted and attended by a couple hundred people. That's the only people that live in Alaska. <laughs> There's only a hundred people that live there, bro. A few days into this search, people find another angle of surveillance video captured by a nearby business. 
and in it you can see Samantha walk and get into a white pickup truck and then it drives away. They were able to estimate the year the truck was and that it was a Chevy, but there was a couple thousand of white Chevy trucks there. Mm-hmm. Alaska. <laughs> or since they can't do much, they bring in the FBI and they assign Jolene Gooden as the lead investigator. And she's also the investigator throughout these this entire case. So a lot of times I'll just say investigators, but I'm talking about her and her team. Okay. So Jolene and the team start looking into anything and everything they could, but get nothing until two and a half weeks later when her boyfriend gets another text from her. And it says, quote, Connor Park sign under pick of Albert. Ain't she pretty? Can you say that text one more okay, time? Okay. Was that English? <laughs> it, was, it was all lowercase. Let no punctuation. Connor Park sign under pick of Albert. Ain't she pretty? Oh, yeah. No, it still doesn't make sense. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but they said Connor Lake Park, and that's where they went, uh, which is about five miles southwest of downtown Anchorage. And when you enter the park, there's a bulletin board. And when they got there, tacked to the bulletin board was a Ziploc bag of a photograph of Samantha and a ransom note. So they know she's alive. So the photograph was her with tape on her mouth, and the photo was, like, intentionally made to look fuzzier, it looked like. And her hair was also in braids, which she never did. They did have to take the photo to her father to identify her, and he did. And said it was her. And the ransom note demanded that $30,000 be placed into her bank account. In 2012, didn't they have, like, phone tracking capabilities? Like, at least, like you know how, like, 911 does that little, like, oh, where are you? Oh, let me just see. Those are usually location. for phone calls, so they can track it while the phone calls live. Uh, did, did Steve Jobs not put that into <laughs> 2012 phones? I don't think so, no. Please, oh. Uh, they deposit a portion of the ransom so they could, like, possibly have contact with the kidnapper to, like, get the rest of the money. Uh, they wait a few days, and her debit card gets used at an ATM to withdraw money in Anchorage three times, each for $500, which is the daily limit. Police rushed to try to catch him there, but just missed him, and then the account went silent. Until March 7th, when there was a withdrawal from an ATM in Wilcox, Arizona, and then another in Lordsburg, New Mexico, and then on March 10th in Humboldt, Texas, and then shortly after, another in Shepherd, Texas. Security footage shows that the suspect was wearing a mask every time and could see that he was driving a white Ford Focus, traveling eastbound, obviously. And when a police officer was driving and saw a white Ford Focus, he kept an eye on it. And, of course, like they all do, he makes a traffic violation, so the officer was able to pull him over. I think this is every serial killer yeah. story ever. Literally. Oh, wait, sorry to put your blinker on. Oh, is that a dead body? <laughs> yeah. uh, so the police officer gets handed an Alaska driver's license. And knows it's the guy. And so then when they're searching the vehicle, the officer found clothing that matched the description of the clothing the suspect was wearing at the ATMs, as well as a gun and Samantha's cell phone and debit card, but no Samantha. The suspect is identified as 34-year-old Israel Keys. They go back to search Israel's house in Alaska, and they find the original white truck that she was seen getting into. And they interviewed him for about 45 minutes, where he didn't say a word about Samantha and left to talk with his attorney. And about an hour later, the attorney calls back and says, okay, he's going to come in and tell you what happened. And after showing Israel the overwhelming evidence they have against him, they get him to agree to a full confession, but not without a few demands from him. He wanted an Americano, a peanut butter Snickers bar, and an opportunity to smoke a cigar. So that's what they gave him, and he finally started talking. So I know this man is, like, horrible or whatever. I've heard, like, a little bit about him from, like, you know, just... You, yeah, and like, 
That's fucking hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they say that his confession was so shocking and graphic, and that's that's why they have never released the full tapes from his confession. But basically, he had a shed in his driveway, and he bound Samantha in there. And he was drinking and smoking cigars, and they turned the music up so any sound she made wouldn't be heard by his neighbors, his girlfriend, or his 10-year-old daughter that were in the house. It always shocks me when there's a serial killer or, like, a, anybody that's, like, you know, mm-hmm. in this situation. And they have, like, a family. Yeah. And the family is like, oh, my God, yeah, we had no idea that he had a girl, like, tied up in our <laughs> shed. <laughs> what? <laughs> that's, like, a lot of them. And you'll see that with him, too, that they really have, like, two totally separate lives. Uh, yeah. But, um, what? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, they were in the house, and he sexually assaulted her throughout the night. And also told her his plan to just get money and that he intends to let her go if he does. But that was not true. While she's in the shed is when he returns to the coffee stand to get her phone and debit card and then goes to an ATM to see how much money is in her account. Then when he returns to the shed that following morning, he kills her by strangulation and also stabs her. And in his words in the interview, he said, you got your monster. The investigators say that he never showed remorse or that he cared at all. He was calm and certainly thought he was the smartest guy in the room. So investigators start to think that he's done this before. And before they also get ahead of themselves there. You just have to give him another cigar and talk. Yeah, pretty much. They want to make sure he's telling the truth about Samantha for one. And they ask him to direct them to her body in exchange for another Americano and Snickers bar. He agrees. No fucking shit. (laughs) Are you serious? Yes. Okay. (laughs) I was joking. No, that's that's an ongoing (laughs) thing in this case. (laughs) Yeah. He continues on saying that the morning after the kidnapping and then killing her, he then rolled her body up and stuck it in a box in a shed, woke up his girlfriend and daughter, went to New Orleans, went on a cruise, and then returned two weeks later. When he returned to her body, because of the cold temperatures, she was frozen, so he thawed her out and then applied makeup to her in order to make her look more, quote, lifelike, and then braided her hair as he braided his daughter's hair. And then that's when he took the photo to use in the ransom note. That's so disgusting. After that, he dismembered Samantha's body and then found Matanuska Lake near Palmer, Alaska, where he then went to what he thought was the deepest part of the lake and used ice fishing as a ruse to cut a hole in the ice to dispose of her body there. And in addition to that uh, kind of a gross part of it, the investigator asked just as a joke if he caught any fish, and Israel said he did catch a few and went home and ate them. So he fully disposed of a body, then caught fish from the same spot and served it to his family at home for dinner. I do like it. (laughs) Yeah. The day after his confession, a search team goes to the lake with an underwater robot and does find her body. And then after that, Israel begins to seem hesitant to talk about other victims, but he is suggesting that there is more. And then he requests an execution date to be done with it all. And they tell him that in order... To get the death penalty, he's going to have to start talking more. And death penalty. The death penalty? Yeah. He he just wanted it to be over with. He did not want to live his life in prison. Which, like, sucks. He doesn't get to choose, but... This guy is very (laughs) interesting. Yeah. And I mean that in a bad way. Yeah. Yeah. Which, the death penalty wasn't even a thing in Alaska. But they were like, we could pull some strings, but you need to talk. (laughs) And they're like, I guess we can kill you. (laughs) And now realizing that Israel, that he has the power... In addition to a speedy execution, he also wants to stay anonymous so his daughter and family wouldn't know about him and have it hanging over them. Investigators agreed to keep his name out of the media to get him to open up about his past, and he does. 
So Israel Keyes was born in Cove, Utah on January 7th, 1978. He's the second of 10 children, born to Heidi and John Jeffrey Israel, a couple who didn't believe in government interference, public schools, or modern medicine, so they never went to doctors. Yeah, well, he already fell <laughs> off to a bad start. Mm-hmm. When Israel was about five years old, his family moved to Colville, Washington, where they lived an isolated existence in the woods. In Israel's childhood, he was homeschooled and wasn't allowed to go play with other kids outside of his siblings. And the family also went without heat or electricity. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In Washington? Yeah. It was a cabin that the father built. So before that, they were actually living in a tent while this cabin was being built. What the fuck? Yeah. said off the grid, but like, <laughs> yeah. make it extreme. <laughs> like, they said, we're going back to the colonial era. Like, we... While in Washington, Israel's parents left the Mormon church that they had been part of and became fundamentalist Christians and joined a white supremacist church that held the views of them and us, basically meaning leave us alone, I'll do what I want. Wow. (laughs) This is okay. Israel states that he was never abused or neglected, but he remembers from a young age that he had violent urges. He said that he's known since he was 14 that there were things that he thought were normal and okay that were not. And I am going to play a clip from his interview where he is talking about a time because you can just hear in his voice his, like, lack of remorse and it's super eerie. It's about 50 seconds long if you want to skip over it because it does involve an animal. There were some friends staying with us when there was a cat of ours that was always getting into the trash. It all went up with the woods and I took a piece of cord and uh, tied it to this tree and... I shot it in the stomach. It ran around and around the tree, and then it like, crashed into the tree. I mean, I actually kind of laughed a little, but then I looked over and the kid who was about my age was throwing up. Like he was just really traumatized, I guess you would say. That was pretty much the last time anybody went in the woods with me. <laughs> I learned my lesson. Can you say anything? No. <laughs> Why'd you get a shooting cap from the woods? No. Yeah. So from that, he didn't mean that he recognized that he needed to change, only that he needed to hide it from other people. Yeah. Because from that point forward, he started doing things by himself. Oh my god. I just, like, what? The laugh. He's like, I actually laughed a little. My friend was throwing up. I have no idea why. Traumatic, I guess. I mean, like, what does the word trauma mean? <laughs> So yeah, once Israel was a teenager, he also started breaking into neighbors' homes to steal guns to continue to hunt and kill animals. And when his parents found out about this and that he no longer shared their faith as well, his father cut ties and kicked him out, though he remained close to his mother. Once he became of age, he was living on his own in Maupin, Oregon, where his violent urges became stronger. The summer of 1997 was Israel's first plan to sexually assault and kill somebody. He said that he staked out a place on the Deschutes River where people go tubing. 
a girl got separated from her party and he took her into an outhouse and sexually assaulted her. He was planning to kill her, but she kept asking him personal questions and talking to him and got into his head and he let her go and sent her on her two back down the river. And he said that he really beat himself up about letting her go because it was a missed opportunity and he wouldn't do it again. The victim in this case was somewhere between 14 and 18 years old because he didn't know her age, but he could tell that she was young. And he said that her name started with an L, but he didn't remember it. And investigators do not believe that this assault was ever reported to law enforcement. I don't like this case. <laughs> After that confession, he wanted an execution date before telling them anymore. He made it clear that he did not want to spend his life in prison. But because the deal was that he tells them more, he said he needed another cigar, Snickers of Americano, and he'll give them two bodies and a name. But then he needs an execution date. And this whole back and forth bargaining and talking is going on for about two months at this point. Two months? Yeah, so they only can interview him like once a week. And so each one's like an hour long. So after two months of doing all this, he agrees to confess to two more murders. Bill and Lorraine Courier were a couple that lived quiet, peaceful lives in Essex, Vermont. Bill worked for the University of Vermont as a caretaker of animals, and Lorraine also worked at the university at the medical center. And on June 9th, 2011, Bill and Lorraine didn't show up for work. Coworkers called authorities because this was very unlike them. And when police got to their house, they saw that the garage window was broken. Uh, Lorraine's 38 caliber handgun was missing, and the phone lines had been cut out. The car was found not far from home, and there seemed to be no sign of a struggle besides the broken window. Nobody knew what happened to them. It seemed like they had just disappeared. But now, 10 months later, we find out that Israel had staked out this random house prior to their disappearance to make sure that it would meet his criteria, that he could easily get in and out, they had a car, there's no dog, and there's no kids. And that's also when investigators find out about Israel's kill kits and just how frighteningly calculated he is. It would contain things like duct tape, shovels, guns, rope, Drano, cleaner, just anything that could be used to capture and hold somebody and then to kill them and dispose of the body afterwards. Were these all over the country? Yep. He mentioned having 12 of these stashed in places around the country. That's... Yeah. He jokingly would say that they were his buried treasure. And some of these kits would sit for years before he would come back to use them. In fact, the kit that he left in Essex that he got again for the courier couple, he left there originally back in 2009. And when did they get killed? Two years later. That's, yeah, okay. So yeah, two years later, on June 2nd, Israel flew from Anchorage to Chicago and rented a car to drive to the courier's house in Essex. Israel said that he cut the phone cords because that would trigger an alarm if they had one set up. So he then sat outside for about two hours after cutting it to make sure he was good and to wait for the neighbors to go to sleep. He then used a crowbar that he found to break the glass and immediately went to their bedroom. He tied them up, put them in their car, and then drove them to an abandoned, rundown farmhouse. It's crazy, like, that it's, well, the entire fucking thing is crazy. Mm -hmm. But that he was, like, it's so calculated. It's like yeah. a puzzle in his head. Yeah. And he's just, like, putting the pieces together. Mm -hmm. That's, like, also, a, like, another thing where it doesn't make sense that he got caught for... The traffic violation? Yeah, like... And using an ATM card? Yeah, like yeah. an ATM card and traffic violation. Like, yeah. it's almost like he wanted to get caught. Mm -hmm. And also, on top of that, he just chooses people, like, at random. Yeah, completely random. That was his big thing, was that he didn't want any ties, and that's why he would also go to places that literally has nothing to do with him. That's terrifying. Yeah. What was his job? Like, what did his family think he was doing? Oh, he did, like, construction kind of work. He was a contract worker. Okay. 
And I was like, if you're just gone that often, yeah. and you'd have to be like under like a truck driver or something like that, you know, like mm-hmm. a job where you travel a lot. Yeah. And well, he also would tell his family that he was going to see like old friends or family, but he never was. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You lied to them too? Yeah. <laughs> Shocker. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he brought Bill and Lorraine to a rundown farmhouse. And he took Bill downstairs and tied him up, and he guessed that took him longer than he thought because Lorraine almost escaped from the car that he like left her in. But he caught her, tied her up, and sexually assaulted her. And eventually, he shot Bill and strangled Lorraine. Israel says that their bodies were in trash bags in the basement. He just left them there. But when investigators got there, the house was gone. Uh, the house was a known hangout for squatters, and so it got demolished that fall. So then that resulted in a 12-week search of the landfill, but they were never found. And a cadaver dog did alert in the basement, and so that means that a body had to have been there long enough to leave a smell. So that does go with the story that Israel said. Did he know beforehand that that was like a place that was marked for getting destroyed or whatever? I doubt it. I mean, if he did, he didn't say it. But I feel like he wouldn't. He doesn't even live there. He doesn't know anything about that place. Uh, doesn't know anything about that place, bro. He is very, very like he knows exactly everything about. No, he picked the house at random and stuff. He I know, but he like like all he watched it. He yeah. made sure all this stuff. Like I feel like it would be hard for him to at least figure out like, oh, where's like a place that he had to find Maybe. out that it was abandoned in the first place. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And then also on top of that, like you could like go around and just ask mm-hmm. the people in the community and be like, hey, like what's going on over here? And they're like, oh, you know, it's probably gonna get demolished soon. And he's like, oh, okay, cool. Like that's interesting. And no, thanks for letting me. You know, it's very like mm-hmm. low key, like casual conversation because if it's a smaller town, everyone's gonna know what's going on. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's fair, yeah. He didn't mention it if he didn't know, but that's a fair point. Yeah. I don't know. I think Could that be. he's so yeah. meticulous about everything that there's, like, no way that he didn't know that the place where he was leaving the bodies. Yeah. He just left them there. Well, he, he left them there with, like, chemicals to kind of, like... Still. Yeah. He just left them there. Yeah. He could have buried them. He could have mm-hmm. done anything. He just left them there. I don't know. I yeah. think that he knew. He definitely could have, yeah. So, following that murder... Israel then traveled around the East Coast before driving to Chicago on June 15, 2011. Israel flew from Chicago to San Francisco, only staying one night, and then returning to Anchorage on June 16th. And so that brings Israel's known victim count up to three. And investigators are confident that there are more and that they can continue to get in talk. However, a leak to the local Vermont media lose it. Investigators had tried to do damage control and they told him about the leak rather than him seeing or hearing it, but just having the leak in general just made him angry. Investigators then had to take a different approach and started being harder on him. And at one point, when asked how many bodies Israel could tell them about, he said, mm, less than a dozen. Uh, but investigators need names. And since they knew that Israel would fly somewhere and then drive a rental car thousands of miles away, the radius of where he could have taken people from is too large to narrow it down at all. This guy literally was like apex predator. This <laughs> guy literally like he was he was like the, the thing that everyone was terrified of. Yeah, but also that nobody knew anything about because that's just for him. literally mm-hmm. the thing that yeah. makes him terrifying. Mm-hmm. That he would choose random people. Nobody knows that he exists. Mm-hmm. It's like a ghost that comes in, fucking murders you. Yeah, and then nobody ever like catches. Not anything. even finding the bodies. Everybody they they just disappear. And they're like, oh, I don't know what happened to them. It's like you just wake up one day, and then these people are all just gone. Like they disappear. Yeah, yeah. they're gone. Yeah, there's no, like no proof that they ever fucking like were there. <laughs> like they're just gone. Yeah, that's terrifying. Yeah. 
this. So as time went on, Israel was still being difficult about telling them more because he knew he had the power and he seemed to enjoy having them coming to him and needing him because he wasn't used to that. So he kept dragging it out weeks after weeks. And over time, they were able to find out some information and come to the conclusion that his first murder was probably in mid to late 2001. Although Israel isn't just fully confessing this time, they do find out from him that 2001 is when he moved to Nia Bay, Washington to start a family with his pregnant girlfriend. He also tells them that within a few months of his first murder in 2001, he also kills his second and third victims. The identity and location of his first victim are still unknown, and for the next two, their identities are also still unknown. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. But they know they were a couple of some sort, and that he killed the female first, and then the male was killed by a shovel strike second. It is also unknown if the victims were residents, tourists, or residents that he abducted elsewhere. Israel alluded to the fact that these victims were buried in a location near a valley, and he may have moved the victim's car to place distance between where the vehicle was found and where the crime occurred. Obviously, I'm not involved, so I don't know, like, the inner workings of it, but, like, how, how do you just, genuinely, how do you just disappear, especially if it's a couple? Like, if you're just, you ask around the town, like, hey... You know, we have to think he's also there for like one day. He doesn't normally fly into the place where they're from. No, but the, if they, like, their identities aren't even known. Well, I'm sure they're known that these people are in a missing case like somewhere. It's just that he never said who they were. So they can't actually be like, oh, OK, it's this person. Like they haven't been able to make the connection as to who it is. But I'm sure that their names are like in that local police office as missing. It's not like they just literally disappeared. I know, but like, it's just like, like if these two people like go missing in your mm-hmm. town or whatever, and then, you know. They uh, get reported to the police and stuff, just like still Bill and like A fucking serial killer is like, oh yeah, so like these people in this town, there was two of them, there was a couple of some sort. Well, he also didn't say a location though. Mm-hmm. He just said, mm, their bodies are buried near a valley. Okay. Like no location. No, for the very first victim, no location or identity at all. He didn't give anything. He just said, mm, I killed somebody in that time. Like, it's, uh, mm-hmm. it's terrifying. Yeah. You just, like, literally stopped existing. Yeah. But, I mean, there's still... And they don't know what happens to you. Yeah. Which, at the very end, I'm going to, like, kind of go through and just talk about some more places he's been, like, at time periods and other, like, kind of small details we have, but literally know nothing about when or where. Some small information, in case anybody, like, knows any information. And there's, like, some details of, like, oh, this person had blonde hair and stuff like that, but literally know nothing. So definitely please listen to that (laughs) if you know anything. Yeah. 
So shortly after that, like after those three victims, is when his daughter was born. And he went about his life normally for a bit. He just was working. And that's also when he decided in that moment, moving forward, to never target children. So that brings up the question, if there are possibly earlier victims they don't know about. Sexually assaulted somebody that could have been 14 years old. And we're questioning his morals. Yeah. Like, well, because before they were like, oh, yeah, his first murder is in 2001. But then he was like, when my daughter was born, I made a decision to never target children. And so they're like, did you target children before? Yeah, I mean, that's fair, mm-hmm. like, especially based off of that yeah. logic. But also on top of that, how many people did he sexually assault? Like, yeah, that's definitely that's, unknown. Yeah, that's going to be a really high number. Mm-hmm. This man's literally fucking like, you know. Yeah. One child that they did question him about, and he denied, but again, we don't actually know, was a 12-year-old Julie Harris who disappeared on March 3rd, 1996 from Colville, Washington. Julie was a Special Olympics athlete that had both prosthetic feet. She went missing while walking to church, and her prosthetic feet were found at Colville River, and a year later, her skeletal remains were found. Israel was 18 and lived in the area at the time, and in information that was just released in 2020, One of Julie's friends mentioned seeing Israel talking to Julie, so that is still currently being looked into as possibly his actual first murder. But yeah, so his daughter is born, and despite this newfound fatherhood and his seemingly normal life, he can't keep his violent urges suppressed. Shocker. And that's also when Israel tells investigators the lies he would make up to keep his family in the dark, like visiting family and old friends. His girlfriend had absolutely no clue and never suspected what he was doing. And at this point in time, they have been questioning him for about five months. Like, I understand that people who are psychopathic are very good at, like, yeah, they're very charismatic, very good at lying and everything. Mm -hmm. But, like, even, like, I just, you don't think anything sus about your significant other? We have to think these are all throughout years. So it's just like, oh, every now and then he's going away for, like, a week. I get that, but also, like, there was literally a girl in your shed. That's only once. He didn't, like, kill people at, like, where he was from, like, ever. That was only the end of it. That's why I think he wanted to get caught. Yeah, before that, he always just went other places. Because he didn't want ties to anything. And also earlier, like, in the one of the beginning parts of the interview that they originally had on him, he even said that he's had, like, two different lives. Two completely different lives and personalities for, like, the last 14 years. Which even investigators say because there would be times where he is acting completely normal with them and talking and laughing and all this stuff. And then he just, like, turns and has no remorse for anything at all. Even, like, lead FBI investigators are like, he's so good at pretending and that nothing's going on. It's terrifying. I don't like that. Yeah. I do not like that. You know, part of me, you know, okay, very much I am... Disgu- like, I want to clarify, I'm very much disgusted by this man, and I, like, it's, like, the most terrifying yes. fucking shit ever. But, like, also, separating, like, him from his, like, psychology, mm-hmm. like, that's very interesting. Yeah. They did do a psych evaluation on him, but it's not released. I just, we just know that they did one. Just, like, the, the psychology. Yeah. Like, yeah. Psychopaths mm-hmm. and stuff like that is so interesting. Okay. Like, not, not, like, what they're... Oh, no, yeah, no. Oh, yeah, I just wanted to clarify. <laughs> I know what you said. Okay, yeah. okay. But, like, it's very, it's so, like, you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's also good that you don't understand how they think. So like, no, yeah, yeah. no, I'm not, I'm not saying, but. <laughs> but, yeah. So a few more weeks of interviews pass, 
and Israel drops hints of two more victims sometime in 2005 to 2006 that were independent of each other. So it's not a couple or anything that time. This is the dude that has like a hundred like unconfirmed kills or some shit like that, right? Not a hundred. It's just like a lot. It's a lot. And it could be up to a hundred. Like we, it's literally completely unknown. He could be tied to so many cases because he's everywhere. He never said I killed a hundred people or anything, but he was literally everywhere in the country and constantly traveled and drove and rented cars, all this stuff. So like man literally <laughs> had like kill kids. So I wouldn't yeah. be shocked if yeah. it was a really, really high number. That he would and that's another thing with those too, that he would go years ahead of time before actually doing anything. So he would be able to travel without any of the things. He would go to this town, buy the stuff, plant it, and then be gone for years. Yeah, no, he wanted to get caught. You can't convince <laughs> me otherwise. Oh, there's no reason that a guy that that's fucking meticulous like would be like, yeah, oh no, um, I didn't put my blinker on. Oh, here's my Alaska ID. Oh, <laughs> I also have all the stuff um from <laughs> in the trunk. Yeah, in the trunk as proof. Yeah. So yeah, there was two more independent of each other that he also refused to give names to. Israel does tell them that he used his boat to dispose of one of the bodies in Crescent Lake in Washington, where he used anchors to submerge the body in over a hundred feet deep of water. After that, in 2007 is when Israel decided that his girlfriend, who was struggling with alcohol addiction, was an unfit mother. So he drove from Washington to Anchorage to move there with his daughter. And there he opened up his own contract business to do work also. He was already like doing that before, but now it's his own business. Why did he move that far away? I don't know. Because like... He said Washington to Alaska. Yeah, I mean, and just logically, if you're going to be like driving around the country killing people, yeah. it doesn't make sense for you to move. Literally where there is an entire another country in between you yeah. and we are intended victims. I mean, it kind of makes sense just because he's really removing himself from mm-hmm. it. So nobody's ever going to be like, hey, you could have been a lot of places yeah. recently <laughs> where people just have like, I don't know, come missing. You want to explain? Because <laughs> he's in fucking Alaska. But it, it's just. Yeah. I don't know why he moved there. He just, he just moved there. Um, so later in April of 2009, he traveled to the East Coast and abducted someone. And drove them over multiple state lines to upstate New York. And that's where they are believed to be buried. Specifically, they could be buried on the property that Israel owns in Constable, New York. But they are still not found. When investigators found this out, though, they started just searching Israel's computer history for any news articles he may have been searching. And came across the name Deborah Feldman, who went missing around that time. Deborah's missing case had very little media attention. Uh, She was a very high-risk person, and so that was a flag to them that he had looked her up at all. And when they showed Israel her photograph, his demeanor changed, he didn't want to talk about her, and indicating that he could have something to do with it. Investigators suspect that Deborah was abducted on April 9th, and it was on April 11th that Israel robbed the community bank in Tupper Lake, New York, which he admitted is something he did on more than one occasion, and it seems to be something he enjoyed doing after he killed someone, he would, like, rob a bank. Naturally. Yeah. Casual bank robbing yeah. after you murder somebody. <laughs> well, he said that... Typical Tuesday. Yeah. He said that he never killed anybody for the money. Like, that was never, like, his goal out of any of it. And he's like, I made a lot of money just robbing banks anyways, so... And it, it would also give him that sort of same, like, adrenaline high. Because he would not only just go and rob the bank, he'd, like, hold people at gunpoint and stuff, but then be out of them really fast. Adrenaline junkies and psychopaths are very similar. Just one has feelings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> After the bank robbery, Israel parked in a nearby campground outside of the area for several hours to wait for the emergency response vehicles to pass, and then he left. Which is also surprising that he never got caught on bank robberies. 
Yeah, um, I feel like bank robberies like don't exist anymore. (laughs) Like I feel like I don't know. Like in my head, like I'm sure they do exist. Obviously, especially smaller banks. In my head, it's like like you know how cowboys like in the movies and stuff always used to like take over trains or whatever. Yeah, like it just (laughs) it just feels like the same like place as that. Fair, yeah. In April 2011, Israel staked out a park near Point Rwanda. I think that's how you say it in Anchorage, Alaska, uh, a bit closer to home because he had violent urges built up. And he admitted that he intended to shoot a couple that were sitting in a car, but his plans were disrupted by two police officers that pulled in the parking lot, and he thankfully ended up not shooting anyone and went home. And during this time of 2011 is when his urges and victim types started to change. Before, he was only attacking people that wouldn't be missed, but from the courier couple is when he learned that he actually likes it more when the people are missed and seeing people talk about them. And that was causing him to make more mistakes and begin to unravel which we see when he kills Samantha and starts using her ATM card. And also during this unraveling of Samantha, just days before his arrest, he actually reached out to his family and attended his sister's wedding, where he ended up making a scene and, like, yelling at his family. What did he yell? It, it's just, like, family issues. Oh. Is that specific? Yeah. Pause. And there's also more information to find out. Um, after killing Samantha and going on the cruise until February 11th, he drove to Texas, as we know, And then there's a bit of time where Israel's location is unknown and investigators believe that he killed someone else while in Texas or somewhere nearby. And he does also admit that the morning of February 16th, he set a home on fire in Alito, Texas. And that's where investigators believe he killed someone and used the fire to cover it up. And then afterwards, he robbed the National Bank of Texas in Azul. What? Yeah. And then he got caught. (laughs) He went from... Well, no, he was already, like, functioning at, like, 100. He went from, like, 0 to 100 to, like, 1,000, bro. Yeah. <laughs> he did, he, he, he said full cent in, yeah. like, the worst possible way. Yeah. I don't know, like, the ATM cards, really, like, I wish they would have got talked to him more about that. Like, why, what caused, like, I knew he was unraveling and making mistakes and stuff and wanting to have people they missed. He killed her that was close to home. He robs banks. Yeah. And he's like, I want $30,000 on this traceable yeah. debit card. Like, this yeah, girl, what? I don't get it. But either way, glad he did because he got caught. And finally, on November 30th, which is seven months of interviewing this guy at this point, he agrees to tell them where some of the other kill kits are located and, like, some more information on who he's murdered. And then two days after agreeing to co- cooperate, he committed suicide. Ah. Uh, yeah. Using a disposable razor embedded in a pencil. So the police are, like, fully just, like, geocaching these yeah. kill kits. Yeah. Like, they're like, um, where was he? Here? Yeah. Hey, if anybody sees, like, a bucket with, like, some knives, like, let us know. No, they are. <laughs> there's still some out there. And... How do they know how many there are? Well, he said that there's at least 12. He meant he admitted to 12. Okay, at least 12? At least 12. Because he's a liar. He, we, there could be plenty more. Yeah, I know that. <laughs> yeah. But, like... <laughs> but he admitted to 12. Yeah, they're fully, like, geocaching. Yes. Murder kids. Yes. So he suicide and they found a suicide note in his cell that were multiple pages long it's a suicide novel yeah uh it read like a poem reminiscing on his murders but didn't provide any extra information on any of them or the amount of them this man is going so far deep in hell it's just it was like the worst case scenario because all of the information just died with him but he was yeah that's why i literally okay while you were saying this i was like why the fuck would they, like, kill him? Yeah. I was like, first of all, that's, like, 
I, I, I don't like it in the first place. Second of all, it, it's so much information about mm-hmm. like, people that are, like, are missing, and you can give them back, like, at least that part of it. Yeah. Like, you know? Oh, yeah. But now it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Also, why the fuck was he left alone? Yeah. I, we, like, there's... Why did they... They know this is a crafty motherfucker. Yeah, they don't know how he got it. The FBI team's like... Why? How? They're like, what? Where, the, where the fuck did this pencil come from? Yeah, they don't know. <laughs> okay, I was like, who the fuck was like, here's like a little razor blade pencil. Yeah. So investigators still don't know how many victims there are, but he kind of admitted to 11. They believe that there's at least 36. Specifically 36. Yeah. Okay. Another thing they found that does confirm his number of at least 11, that was also released recently, was 11 drawings of skulls that Israel did in his own blood that were found under his cell bed. They believe each one represents a victim, and that confirms that there's at least seven more victims that they know absolutely nothing about. But again, they believe that there's at least 36. He really thought. he He's like, I should have gone to art school. He's like making poetry, <laughs> like making like paintings. Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> like, sir, it's literally, you, you're not doing something. Just tell them where it is. Yeah. You're not you're not creative. <laughs> so the case is still ongoing. And they're still looking for mo- information on missing people in the areas that Israel visited. So like I said, I'm going to go through some more places. If you have any information at all that may even seem unimportant, but lines up with the time, please contact the FBI at 1-800-CALL-FBI. So that's 1-800-225-5324. Doesn't even have to be the exact location because we know... That he would drive thousands of miles from where he traveled to, so it could be important. And I'm also only listing off the places that law enforcement believes he could have actually, like, engaged in criminal activity or killed somebody. For a full list of dates that he traveled, including flights and what kind of cars he rented, I'll have a link in the show notes to a document that has it all listed. So from October 31st to November 5th, 2008, Israel flew to Seattle following travel to multiple other states, including North Dakota and Arizona. On October 31st, Israel rented a 2008 PT cruiser in Seattle, and on November 2nd, Israel flew from Seattle to Boston, and then he returned to Seattle and flew back to Anchorage on November 5th. And on July 9th to July 12th, 2010, Israel flew from Anchorage to Sacramento, California, and traveled to Auburn, California. He rented a Black Ford Focus and drove approximately 280 miles during the three days. And like I said, law enforcement believes that he did commit some crime while at these places. So, when you're in your entire United States, fair game. Yeah. And this is literally just yes. not even like... <laughs> yeah, in May 2011, Israel reported that he also staked out North Fork Trailhead in Eagle River, Alaska, with the intention of abducting someone, and he did prepare a kill kit a short distance up the road that contained Drano and a shovel, which he intended to use to dispose of the body. Israel denied taking a victim from this location, but we are still unsure. Israel also admitted to burying a kill kit of money and guns near Green River, Wyoming. Known dates of travel to Wyoming area are September 2007, July 2008, and September 2011. Wait. Why is Green River sound familiar? Green River killer. That makes sense. Yes. I was like, wait, wait, I I know (laughs) something about that. (laughs) He also admitted burying a kill kit near Port Angeles, Washington, but we're unsure of what dates he visited that area. And he also provided additional details regarding the abduction and murder of a female. The female is described as having pale skin, possibly having a wealthy grandmother, and driving an older car at the time of her abduction. That's like fucking nothing. Yeah, I know. 
Um, like that could be like Anastasia from like the fucking movie. Like, <laughs> you got a rich grandma. Oh, nice. That's it. And How did they even know that? Just like small things that he's like mentioned throughout thirteen plus hours of interviewing. A wealthy grandmother was like yeah. the one. Th- she's in hell and she has a wealthy grandmother. Oh, okay, yeah, I know exactly who that is. Mm. Israel also indicated that he committed only one murder in addition to Samantha Koenig, in which the body was recovered. So all these other possible killings, the bodies have never been found. So besides this one person, um, in this homicide, Israel reported doing something to the victim's body or moving the body to a location where, if found, it would appear as though the victim died from an accident. And in this situation, the body was recovered, and authorities did rule the death accidental. But he knows it's not. I hated that one. Yeah. He got caught on purpose. (laughs) There's no way you can convince me otherwise. How do you even do that? I mean, like, I know, like, people in, like, movies and stuff try and do that all the time, but, like, it never actually fucking works. It worked for him. Yeah, Yeah, that's terrible. I hate that one so much. That there's somebody with a close, like, what they believe is a closed case. This loved one died accidentally. And he's just, like, (laughs) Ah. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> he also traveled internationally, and is it is unknown if he committed any homicides while outside of the yeah. United States. It is important to note that while living in New York, Israel was in close proximity to the border of Canada, and he crossed into Canada on multiple occasions. He also reported several trips to Montreal, in which he sought out prostitutes, and he also made some trips to Mexico, Egypt, and Belize. But the international travel dates are also on the document that I'll have linked. Again, if you have any information for law enforcement regarding Israel Keys, please contact the FBI at 1-800-CALL-FBI or submit them online at the fbi.gov tips. Or again, if you come across one of the kill kits, please don't touch it. Contact local law enforcement and then they'll reach out to the FBI. Can you imagine like just like going on a little walk through the woods or something, just like a little like hiking trip and then finding a kill kit? I, I wouldn't even know what to do. So that is the story of Israel Keys. And um, hopefully they can find more connections and give other families closure. Yeah. At least 36, possibly. That's crazy. It's like one of the like most prolific serial killers. Like yeah. he's killed some of them, like one of the people who's killed like the most people in like known in American history. He's one of the most prolific serial killers that most people don't even know about. Besides like people in the true crime world. Like, yeah, at, like household, like every... About him is because of you yeah and like everybody knows like ted bundy and jeffrey Dahmer and stuff like that like he there's so many more people out there that are still considered missing that he possibly murdered and most people don't even know i want to know like obviously i don't want her to have to go through that like ever or to like go back to those memories but like i want to know how of like was he a good father to his daughter nothing has ever came forward she they won't like they haven't talked about it. I can't even find her name. Um, I mean, no, good. Yeah, no, it is good. Good. That's yeah. good for her. Like, yes. I'm oh, very definitely. happy about that. But like that's like Ted Bundy's daughter, like that yeah. kind of thing. But like I I would just be interested yeah. to know if he was a good father. I mean, oh some coworkers that worked with him and stuff did say that he would talk about his daughter and was like gave off the vibes of a good father. Like he would talk about her, like care about her, like at work, like it sounded like he was good. They obviously don't know. But she was the only person that he yeah. actually cared about. Yeah. I don't think he hurt her in any way is what I, I mean, at least I hope not. 
because he also wasn't abused or anything as he as far as he says as a child it's like i hope he was good to her she would be like our age mm-hmm. when was she born 2001 or something i think she was 10 when he was 2001 so yeah she's our age yeah she's a year younger than us mm-hmm. yeah because her 2001 or 2002 or something like that because they don't know exactly when since they don't release information on her Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. And in my head, like, I always just, like, thought that this was, like, a really long time ago. Like, I thought it was, like, a, like, you know, Ted Bundy, like, Jeffrey Dahmer, like, you know, like, 70s, 80s, like, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And then you were like, oh, yeah, just, like, 2000, like, 11. I was like, you were alive? Yeah. What? You in Chicago at the same time, I him at one point. Don't say that. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's his case. Let us know what you guys think. Please reach out if you have any information. Thanks, guys, for sticking with us. Sorry we weren't here for two weeks, but we really appreciate you guys. Catch us next week on Grave Danger. Mm -hmm.